Last week, Eric kicked off our Advent series, which we've titled Season of Grace, with a message, Grace Through Disobedience. And we were reminded of the fall of our first Adam, the first Adam, um, as he chose to disobey God and he ate of the fruit of which he was commanded not to. And by doing so, he plunged all of mankind into sin and death through sin. But then we also were reminded of the second Adam. And second Adam being Jesus Christ, that baby that we look forward to celebrating here in a few weeks uh, come Christmas time. The reason for Advent, the reason for an Advent series is to look forward to him and look forward to the time of his, that we celebrate his birth. Obviously, we know he has already come. Uh, in many ways, we look forward to him coming again the second time. So this week, we move into another layer of those topics of grace um, designed to point us to the manger and ultimate really, ultimately really designed to point us to the cross of Christ. So the title of the message this morning, is, as Eric has already mentioned a couple times, is Grace Through Law. Last week, we had grace through disobedience. Now we have grace through through law. Are you getting the pattern? <laughs> the big idea here is this, that God gave the law to reveal the depths of our sin so that we may understand more fully the grace provided through his perfect lamb. I just realized that kind of rhymes a little bit. I'll, I'll read it again. God gave the law to reveal the depths of our sin so that we may understand more fully the grace provided through his perfect lamb. The name of Christ, if you have not guessed already, that we'll be associating with this uh, grace through the law is the lamb of God. We're going to dive into this passage in Galatians. I'm sure some of you were probably a little scared by the number of verses that we read, uh, knowing my propensity to go slowly. Um, we won't be going through all of them <laughs> this morning, uh, but I wanted you to hear some of the context of the verses that we, that we are going through, so you have a little bit more information as we dive here, dive in here, kind of in the middle of this book. Uh, usually when we're, when we're preaching through a book, we have the whole context of the book that we've gone through so far, and so it's a, a little bit easier to dive right into each passage because we've already covered everything beforehand. So, uh, I want to just kind of give a quick overview of what's happened in the book of Galatians so far. This is a book that was written to the churches of Galatia. Um, this was not one of Paul's prison epistles. It was most likely written during his travels with Silas on the second missionary journey. And so Paul is writing to this church in Galatia, and he's writing for their churches in Galatia, and he's writing for a very specific purpose. If you remember, in the early church, we, we saw signs of people that we would call Judaizers. These are people who were coming into the church and they were trying to get the church to tack onto the grace that is through Jesus Christ and his shed blood, the works of the law. They wanted to say, hey, if you, you have to believe in Jesus, but you also have to fulfill the works of the law. Specifically, one of the big ones they were really worried about was circumcision for some reason. But they, they, wanted, they wanted the church to, to be focused on adding the works of the law to salvation. And so to Christ's work for salvation. And so what, uh, what Paul is writing to the Galatians about here is, first of all, the sufficiency of Christ in salvation. And then secondarily, 
the fact, the, the purpose of the law, the reality that the law was not designed for salvation. The law was given for another purpose. And we're going to look at that this morning as we dive here into chapter 3. In chapter 3, the focus of, of this chapter really is Paul showing that God's promise to Abraham is what we hope in. If you remember back when we went through the book of Genesis, we talked about the promise that was to Abraham. And that promise was the one that we're focusing on here. That promise was that he, through all the nations of the world, would be blessed through him. Every nation of the world would be blessed through Abraham. And we understand that through the New Testament to mean that through Abraham would come the promised one. The promised one who was promised to Adam when he sinned. When God promised Adam that there would be one that would come that would crush the serpent's head. That promised one would come through the line of Abraham. And so we have this promise that the Messiah would come through Abraham. And yet, as we saw in Galatians, 430 years later, God gives them the law. And so Paul is dealing with what, what looks like a, a contradiction here, what looks like a, a problem, where we have this, problem, this, this promise through Abraham, but yet God has also given the law. And so these Judaizers are coming into the churches of Galatia, and they're, and they're trying to encourage them to obey the works of the law, not just as good things to do, but as a means of salvation along with Christ. And so that is the the tension that we see in the passage here as we go through it. Let's look at these verses that we'll be going through again very quickly. Verses 19 through 26. Galatians 3 verses 19 through 26. Says this, says this, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring would come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now that before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. This morning, we're going to look at four graces given to us through the law. Four graces given to us through the law. The first one that I see here is that the law displays our sin. The law displays our sin. It shows that we are sinful, that we are wrong, that we have failed to meet the standard. Many of you know that I am a, am a, a person who enjoys board games. And some of the board games that I have have uh, fairly lengthy rule books. And as much as I enjoy studying those rule books and, and understanding how to play the game, uh, there are times where I find myself playing the game incorrectly. And, uh, and there, we'll reach a point in the game and something just won't seem right. We'll go back and we'll, and we'll pull out the rules. And as we're reading through the rules, all of a sudden we realize, oh no, 
We've done this wrong. The whole game is completely messed up because we've been playing this the wrong way. Uh, many of you probably have played a board game the wrong way. If you've played Monopoly and you've put your free, money, free parking money in the middle of the board game, you've been playing it the wrong way. All right? I hate to break the news to you. That's not in the rules. Those are house rules. All right? But, but often we, we want to do things the way that we want to do them, right? We, we want to play the game the way that, that makes sense to us. So, you know, we, we have a better idea oftentimes than what the rules are. And, and in a board game, that's okay. You know, we can, we can make house rules in a board game, but that doesn't work when it comes to our spiritual life. That doesn't work when it comes to our relationship with God. And so God has given the law here in verse 19. It says, why then the law? Why do we have the law? If we have the promise, why do we have the law? And he says it was added because of transgressions. Transgressions meaning sin, meaning breaking the law. The law was added to show that we have broken the law. The law was given. It was designed to show that we are sinners. Think about that. We needed something that we could measure ourselves against to prove to ourselves that we're sinners. Romans chapter 3 verses 19 through 20 says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Romans 7, 7 through 8 says this, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. We do not recognize the depths of our sin without the law. We do not recognize just how how bad our sin is without the law. By showing us the standard that God has put in place, the standard of God's moral code, God's design for how we should live, without that, we would never know just how bad we actually are. But because we have the law, we have a standard to measure against. All we have to do is look at the Ten Commandments. Very simple list. Most of you probably have it memorized. If you don't, you can find it in Exodus chapter 20. Very simple list of commands. And yet, when we measure ourselves against them, we find ourselves sinful. Transgressors, breakers, of the law, more than likely, almost all, if not all of them, we have broken. Even Adam, who had one law, chose to sin. What are those Ten Commandments? First one is, have no other gods before me. Have no other gods before me. That's easy. We don't, we don't have gods, right? We, don't, we just believe in one God. The idea there is, He is preeminent. He is above all things. Have you ever had anything in your life that was more preeminent than God? That was more important than God? That, that achieved, that gained your attention, your desire more than God? 
then you broke commandment one. Do not make any idols. Okay, we're good there. Right? Nobody was at home carving any idols out of stone or wood this week, right? So you're probably good. We make idols of other things, don't we? Money, power. Even as believers, we make idols of things that are good, do we not? Maybe an opportunity of ministry and we, we cling on to it as if that is, that is everything to us. Oftentimes even more than the one that we are serving. Do not make any idols. Do not take God's name in vain. Many ways that you could do that. Not just swearing. Even by saying, I'm a follower of Christ and living in a way that does not please Him is in a sense taking God's name in vain. How many times have we even called out to God in prayer, not believing, not really even talking to God, Maybe it's, it's a praying up here. I don't think Eric was doing this, but praying up here in front of people and, and you find yourself thinking more about what you're saying so that other people will hear it than about the God that you're praying to. That's taking his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. If you remember way back in Genesis, we talked about this. Do you have a time that is set aside to worship God? A time of rest where he is the focus? Or are you just busy with life? Does he get none of it? Honor your father and mother. Kids, how are you doing in that? Oh, you might be obeying, but are you honoring them? Do you do it with the right attitude? Adults, how are you doing with that? Do you treat your parents with respect and honor? Murder, we're all off the hook as far as I know. Jesus said, if you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder. Adultery. Jesus said, if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. Theft. Maybe you haven't stole something physical. Maybe it's stealing time at work when you have things you should be doing and you're not doing it. False witness. Children. Have you ever told on your brother or sister and maybe left a few things out? You don't have to shake your head, AJ. Or maybe you added a few things that weren't quite true. Bearing false witness. Covetousness. Have you ever looked at somebody else's things and desired them, maybe even pursued them above Christ, maybe even put your covetousness as an idol and pursued it. That's only 10 laws out of 613 that God gave to the Israelites. How are you doing so far? God has given us the law as a means of grace to show us our sinfulness. Have you ever thought about the law in that way? I don't know about you, but oftentimes I think of the law and I think, as a believer, man, glad I'm not under that thing anymore. You know, we kind of look at it and we're like, man, that was that was horrible for the Israelites. I feel sorry for them having to be under the law. You read the book of Leviticus and you just 
your eyes kind of get crossed a little bit and all the different sacrifice, all the same sacrifices really kind of for all the different things. That's a, that's a long read. Um, but you kind of maybe feel sorry for them and you're like, Ooh, man, I'm glad I don't have to be under that anymore. But do we think of it as a grace that God has given us to reveal to us the depths of our sin, to show us, look, you need a savior because you don't measure up. Here's my standard and you don't measure up. And that is a grace of God that he gives us the law so that it displays our sin. We're actually going to skip over the end of this verse and the next verse. Don't worry, we'll come back. I promise. And we're not just skipping over it because it's hard. All right. So we're going to jump down to verse number 21. And this is the second point. The second point is this. The law demotes our works. So the law displays our sin, but the law also demotes our works. Galatians chapter 3 verse 21 says this. It is, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that would give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. We think of these standards. I, I think back to my times in junior high. We were bussed over to another facility for junior high at the school that I went to. And it was, it was just 7th and 8th grade. And we would have PE outside and we would run around the building. And a mile was running around the building seven times. I was praying sometimes that it would fall down after the seventh time. But you had to run around the building seven times, and that was a mile. Well, I'm not a great athlete. Um, and unfortunately, most of your grade was reliant on, relied on this, this running, meeting a certain time. And I was the shortest guy in the class. Um, so, you know, I didn't run particularly fast. I didn't like running, and that didn't help at all. And so I got a C in PE both years of junior high school because I couldn't meet the standard. I couldn't, I couldn't run fast enough to get a, a better grade. And I tried, I, I, especially my first year, man, I, I put in the effort. I was, I was trying, I was getting better, and I did. I got better. My time, it, not increased, my time decreased. Uh, and so I, I got faster, and I saw improvement in, in what I was doing. I, I was working hard and I was making gains in my mind. But in the, compared to the standard, it didn't matter. I, I still got to see because my good running, my better running didn't meet the standard, didn't make the grade. Paul tells us that we have the law not as a means for salvation, but as a means of showing us that our righteousness will never be good enough. Our righteousness will never be good enough. We have this question, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. Paul's not saying that the law is, is anything more, is anything that's going to help us reach salvation. It does not put away the promise that was made to Abraham. That promise is still firm. That promise is still the way of salvation. It is not through the law. Why? Why is it not through the law? He says, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. 
See, our righteousness cannot be earned in keeping the law. God never intended the law to give life to anyone. It was to reveal the depths of our sin. It was to demote our own self-righteous acts. No matter how much we work or how, how hard we try, our works will never measure up to the standard of righteousness that God has provided in the law. Never. There is no righteous act that we can do to bring about life to our spiritually dead corpses because we are under sin. No matter how many good things we do, in the eyes of God, we will never be righteous. No matter how many of the laws we keep, in the eyes of God, we will never be righteous. We read this already in Galatians 3, further above. It says in verse 10, For all who rely on works of the law are under what? A curse. Are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. That's a pretty high standard, isn't it? We're cursed because we do not abide by the things of the law. So why would we attempt to find our salvation in it? Ecclesiastes 7.20 says this, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Romans 3.10-12 says this, As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Luke 16, 14 through 15, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before who? Men. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of of God. We've recently finished the book of James. James 2.10 says, Forever keeps the whole law that fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. This goes against our culture, does it not? Our culture has the idea that people are basically good. Yeah, of course, there's some people who, who do bad things. There's some people that, that are even evil but the majority of people are basically good, right? Paul says, no. The law has been given to us to diminish our righteousness. To show that our righteousness, no matter how good it looks to us, will never match the demands of the law. We look at ourselves and compare ourselves to one another and even to external ideas of morality and we think that we're pretty good, but the law demotes our righteous acts by showing that we cannot fulfill it perfectly. The third grace, the law demonstrates our despair. The law demonstrates our despair. Verses 22 through 23 says this, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. 
Paul's using this idea of Scripture and the law imprisoning us or holding us captive. Now, this is kind of a hard concept to understand, even reading through some of the commentaries. There's uh, differing ideas of what that means. Um, so I'll share kind of a couple that, that I've landed on as I've studied this and looked through it. Um, I see this imprisonment or this, this uh, captivity in a couple of different ways. First of all, I see it as God restricting our sin through the law. God uses the law to restrict our sin. Let me ask you, why did God destroy the earth with a flood? Because of the wickedness of mankind. It says in Genesis chapter 6 that man's, even that his thoughts were, were evil continuously. That, that is what it was like in the days of Noah when he destroyed the earth with a flood. And so one of the purposes of the law is to restrict uh, man's sin. God uses uh, many things for this, like civil government, um, to hold back man from doing the things that he desires. It's one of the reasons why governments have laws. If you read Romans 13, we see that we are to be subject to governing authorities because God has set them up as agents of himself so that they can dole out punishment. That's the purpose of, of the laws of man. But also get, God gives us the law, not just for physical government, governments, but morally, to help restrain us from things that we otherwise would do. Romans 1, 19 through 21 says this, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. We all know naturally because of God's creation that he exists. We all know that he is God. It says his divine nature. He's revealed himself to us through creation. We know that he is there, but yet we do what? We suppress the truth. We suppress the truth. Romans 2, 14 through 16 continues these thoughts on the matter. It says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law the physical law given to Moses, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ. It's interesting, he says here that their conscience bears witness of the law. I can't escape that. Even though the Gentiles didn't have the law, their conscience bears witness of the law. God even uses our conscience and the law written in our hearts as a means of restricting our sins. How often do we hear even non-believers say, oh, I would never do that. I would, I would never murder somebody. I would never cheat on my wife. I would never do this or that. It's not their righteousness. 
It's the law of God written on their hearts. Another idea outside of this concept of restriction is an idea of protective custody. Protective custody. Now, a lot of times I think we think of protective custody as a witness, right? Who is who's witnessed something, and I know you watch, we watch too much TV, but they've witnessed something, and the, the, the bad guys are going to try to get rid of them so that they can't testify, you know, so they're in protective custody. But uh, when we look at that, we think, well, they're, you know, they're the good person. Well, sometimes they're also the bad person. Sometimes there's somebody who was involved in the very things, but they've turned against, you know, the people that the, that the government really wants to get. And so they go into this protective custody witness protection. But that doesn't mean that they're any better. And that is where we find ourselves. Certainly not good in this process, but breakers of the law. I see this protective custody idea as the law serving to remind us of our guilt until the time we hear and believe the gospel. The law in Scripture has imprisoned us to remind us of our sin, to show us that our, that our works cannot meet the standard, to remind us of the punishment that is due because of that and the guilt that we have because of that. It keeps us under this reality of the wrath of God. Romans 4.15 says, For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. Without the law, we would not know the severity of the wrath of God. Proverbs 19.5 says, A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will not escape. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's right before the other passage that we read. It's not just some people. It's all unrighteousness of men. God's wrath is poured out on them. Proverbs 11.21 says, Be assured, an evil person will not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. Ephesians 5, 5 through 6, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, or ha- has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. We could go on and on with more verses about the wrath of God, but I think it's clear that we have broken God's law, and because of that, we deserve punishment. The law reminds us that there is a price to be paid. It reminds us that the punishment is deserved because we have sinned. And God gives us the law as a grace to remind us of the punishment we deserve. But those verses didn't in there, did they? Verse 23. Until the coming faith would be revealed. Until the coming faith would be revealed. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Are you thankful for that this morning? That we do not have to remain under a law, a hopelessness, 
of punishment, of the wrath of God to come upon us, but we can live in victory because of Christ. Fourthly, the law declares our hope. The law declares our hope. Verse 24, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. This word guardian has the idea of usually an older slave who was sent with the children to school to make sure that they got there when they were supposed to get there and that they came back home safely. Um, we, and I think the King James uses the word schoolmaster. We kind of get the idea that that's uh, somebody actually teaching, but this is really just more of a guide. This is somebody who's, who's guiding them from home to where they need to be and back of them, back, back again, kind of a, a protector leading them to where they need to be. It says that the law is our guardian. The law is our guide. The law is the thing that brings us to Christ. It is the thing that points us to Christ. It points us to our need of Christ. Our need of a Savior, it points us to the one who is Christ. It points us to the perfect sacrifice. The SV says, until Christ came. Another way of translating that is to lead us to Christ. That's what the law does. It shows us where we are and leads us to the one who can save us. Are you thankful for that? Jesus was the promised offspring to Abraham. The promised offspring of Adam who would make the way for all men. Jump back to verse 19. I told you we'd come back to that. It says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until what? Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. We know the offspring here is Jesus Christ, who was promised to Abraham. It says that this was put in place by the angels, talking about the law. The law was put in place by angels. This is actually a Jewish tradition. We don't see it in the, in the actual Old Testament account of God giving the laws to Moses. We don't see angels specifically, but Paul is, is referencing a Jewish tradition that angels brought the law to Moses. And then he says this, that it was given by angels to an intermediary. So when it comes to the law, where he's talking about the law of Moses, that intermediary would be Moses. And then he makes a very interesting statement. He says, now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. We know that the law came from God to Moses, to the children of Israel, and Moses was an intermediary. But there's another way you can translate that word, and that word can be translated mediator. Mediator. Yes, Moses was in a sense a mediator between God and the children of Israel, but Paul is saying there's a greater mediator. Mediator, greater mediator. And that is Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6 says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Why? Who gave himself a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus is the mediator. Hebrews 9, 15 says, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, 
so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. He mediates a new covenant for us, one not based on the law of Moses, but one based on the grace of God through the death of his son on a cross. And the law was given to lead us to him. In order that we might be justified by faith. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. The law has imprisoned us, reminding us of the wrath of God upon us, but yet we are justified by faith. And because of that, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 3, 23 through 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. We always cut off after verse 23 because it doesn't fit in our little Romans road process. But that's a whole sentence there. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God and we are justified. Not because of anything that we've done in accordance with the law, but his grace, but by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 3.27, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. By the law of faith. Jesus, the Lamb of God, is slain to take on the punishment we deserve and give us hope. 1 Peter Chapter 1, verses 18 through 19 says this, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He is the lamb who was slain. The law required the blood of many animals, not to remove sin, but to cover it. And yet Jesus Christ has shed his blood to take away sin. To make the ultimate payment. Revelation 5, 6-10 says this. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and, a golden, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Are you looking forward to that day? Verses 25 and 26 says this, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. Through faith. 
Are you thankful for the law? Without the law, we would not know the depths of our sin. Without the law, we would not be able to realize that our self-righteousness is worth nothing. Without the law, we would not have the reminder of the penalty that is deserved. And without the law, we would not be led to Christ, the Lamb of God, who is paid for our sins. Do you see the law as God's grace in your life? Are you thankful that it reveals your sin? Are you thankful that it shows your righteousness is worthless? Are you thankful that it warns us of the punishment that we deserve? Are you thankful that it points us to the Lamb who has redeemed us? One more passage. It's a little lengthy, but I'll end with this. And then we'll pray. Hebrews chapter 10. Verses 11 through 18 talks about the lamb that was slain. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Father, we thank you for the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We thank you for this time of the year that we celebrate his coming to earth. And Lord, we know that as we, as we look at this child in a manger, this newborn baby, we see the innocence that is there and we see the fragility that is there. But yet we know that he came not to just be a baby in a manger, but he came to be a lamb who would be slain. He came to give his life a ransom for many, a, a ransom for those who according to your law are sinners who deserve wrath. And yet he shed his blood for all of us to redeem us, to bring us back into fellowship with you, to give us new life, to give us eternal life. And there's nothing that we can earn, do to earn it. There's nothing that we can do to add to it. It is holy by your grace through his work on the cross, through his resurrection from the dead. And we receive it by faith, Lord, and we thank you for it. And we praise you for it. And we pray that you would never allow it to leave the forefront of our minds, especially as we come to this 
Advent time that we would be reminded week after week of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for worthless sinners and your great love for us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.